Uh, here the uh, epistle of Paul to the Philippians uh, is a very interesting uh, book. Uh, the book of Philippians is one of Paul's prison epistles, uh, written, many believe, uh, from Rome, some believe from Caesarea, while Paul was in prison for preaching the gospel. And even in the first part of chapter 1, uh, Paul draws attention to this fact, that he is imprisoned. Um, but the, the church at Philippi was a, uh, a very interesting church. Uh, Philippi was a city uh, comprised of a, a vast majority of Gentiles. It was a Roman colony. Uh, many believe that there was a large population of Roman soldiers who had taken up residence in Philippi. Uh, as opposed to a lot of the uh, Jewish communities that you would see when Paul went into Philippi, he did not go to the synagogue, as typically his custom was when he went into a new city to preach uh, Jesus Christ. But instead he went outside of the city. In Acts chapter 16 we can see this. Uh, so it was a, a largely Gentile city. But if you look at Acts chapter 16, you see the, the wonderful work that God did in founding this church at Philippi. The two uh, stories that are very familiar, Lydia, the con- Lydia's conversion in Acts chapter 16, the first half. And then the second half, we see after Paul being imprisoned for casting out this uh, devil, uh, he was imprisoned uh, along with Silas. Uh, and was uh, thrown into jail. We know the story about the Philippian jailer uh, being converted as well. So God did an amazing work in the founding of this church at Philippi. Uh, the church was not without its difficulties, however. In fact, if you were to look in Philippians chapter 1, a, a passage that we've just read in verse 28 through 30, uh, you'll see mentioned by the Apostle Paul in this letter to them the persecutions and afflictions that they were suffering. Uh, he mentions uh, in verse 28, not frightened in anything by your opponents. In verse number 30, he says, you are engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now you hear that I still have. So just as the Apostle Paul was suffering for his faith in Christ and for his proclamation of Jesus Christ, so too were the Philippian believers under some type of persecution. We don't know the extent of the persecution. We don't know what form that took, whether uh, it could have been imprisonment, uh, it could have been a ridicule, it could have been loss of, of money, of jobs, of these type of things. We don't know exactly what it was, but he's writing this letter to encourage them. And uh, so far departed from what you and I would think of, we would need if we were in, enduring persecution. Uh, Paul's theme in Philippians is rejoicing. Uh, over and over and over, Paul mentions his joy and rejoicing in the Lord, especially when we get to chapter 4. Uh, we see uh, Paul emphasizing that in, the, in a great way. But in Philippians chapter 1 and 2, we're going to look specifically at chapter 2 and verse 12 to 13. But just to kind of give you a brief overview and kind of what leads up to chapter 2. In the midst of this persecution, Paul writes to them and he encourages them uh, to holiness, he encourages them to unity, to humility, uh, and to perseverance through the, the uh, persecutions that they are enduring, especially in verse 27 through the first part of chapter 2 and verse 4. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 3, do nothing 
from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here he's encouraging them to self-sacrifice, to humility, to lifting one one another up and esteeming one another greater than ourselves. This is something that we struggle with today as well. Uh, our, our selfish pride likes to think much of ourselves and less of, less of others. Um, you know, in, in middle school, um, elementary school, you know, the big thing was picking on your classmates. And it wasn't necessarily so much to pick on them as it much, a lot of times it was to make yourself look better. Well, I don't have this, or I don't have that, or I got better grade here, or you didn't do so well on here. Comparing ourselves amongst one another so that we look better so that we feel better about ourselves, but that's not the attitude that Paul is encouraging the Philippians to have. He says, you are to be humble, not fragmented, not of many different opinions, many different thoughts, but of one mind, serving together side by side for the sake of the gospel. In fact, in verse number three, he forbids them from doing anything from selfish ambition or conceit. Nothing is to be done from this attitude of pride. But on the flip side, in humility, we are to count others more significant than ourselves. So how are we to accomplish this? How are the Philippians to accomplish this? Well, um, Paul gives them um, a very good example of humility, uh, the best example of humility in verses number 5 through verse 11, where Paul draws attention to our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These verses, verse number 5 through verse 11, is what many scholars refer to as uh, the Carmen Christi. Uh, many, Many believe that this was not necessarily original to the Apostle Paul, uh, but this was what they would say is one of the early hymns of the church. A hymn that is sung exalting Jesus Christ and magnifying Him, praising Him as God. Whether or not this is true um, has yet to be proven. We don't have firm, hard facts about this, but regardless of the case, we believe all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And is profitable. And what here Paul refers to in pointing to the example that Jesus Christ offered in his humility and his obedience and his sacrifice, uh, certainly that holds true uh, for both us today as well as for the Philippian believers. Paul here is encouraging them to follow the pattern that was set by Jesus Christ. And surely, if there is any example that we are to look to, it is to be Jesus Christ. Many times we hear somebody speak or we hear someone sing and we're like, wow, man, they just have a, a wonderful uh, uh, aura about them when they sing. They're, they're so eloquent. They're so well, well uh, thought out. They're so concise and uh, just a, whatever it might be. 
But when it comes to living the Christian life and pleasing God and living holy lives uh, so that he might be glorified, uh, we need look no further than Jesus Christ. Uh, This is especially true when it comes to the issue of humility. Here, Christ, to a far greater extent uh, than the Philippians were encouraged to do, humbled himself. It was not one human being uh, humbling themselves before another human being only. Of course, we know Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man, but he was indeed the God-man. And he humbled himself by taking upon himself the form of a servant, being found in human form, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to, the, to death, even death on a cross. This is the obedience, this is the humility that Paul is referring to and commending to them as an example and as a pattern for good works in their life. That brings us down to verse number 12 of Philippians chapter 2. After all of this, after pointing to Christ as the example, after encouraging them to humility in the face of persecution, after exhorting them to look after one another and not simply after themselves, uh, he brings, it brings us to verse number 12. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In verse number 12 and verse number 13, there's several things that I think I'd like to to separate and uh, look at uh, separately. The first thing is uh, Paul's commendation of the Philippians' obedience. We find that in verse number 12. The second thing is, is the exhortation and the command that he gives them um, and to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. So we see his commendation of their past obedience, his exhortation to them to work, to do the work of a believer, to work out their own salvation in fear and trembling. But lastly, uh, he looks not just at the believer's work, but to a far greater extent, he looks at the work of God in the life of his believers, in the life of his saints. So why don't we look at verse number 12, he says, Therefore, building upon everything that he has said up to this point, pointing to the humility of Christ, to his example, to the obedience that Jesus Christ uh, displayed in humbling himself, uh, being obedient to death, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my present, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Notice he says, you have always obeyed. I would love for that to be said about my life. But I know it's not true. There are many, many areas in our, of our lives where we know what God wants for us. We know what he wants us to do. We know the difference between right and wrong. We know the difference between sinning and living a holy life in submission to the Spirit of God. But many times we don't obey Christ, we don't obey His Word, and instead we seek after our own way. Paul pointed to the Philippians, and of course, the Philippians were imperfect. The Philippians were, indeed, even as believers, sinners. But they were obedient. Uh, We look in uh, uh, Acts chapter 16, 
Paul comes to them and he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And what do they do? By the grace of God, they believed. In uh, Romans chapter 6, uh, verse number 17, uh, the same word in obedience uh, is used uh, as a response to something that was heard. Here the Philippians, once they heard what Paul had to tell them, they responded to that by doing something. I heard a, I saw this uh, word picture that was painted about uh, uh, this word obedience as in uh, answering a door that was knocked upon. When somebody knocks on your door, what do you do? You either you say, quick hide, who is it? Peek out the windows, or you go and you answer the door. In response to something that you have heard, you take action. And here the Philippians had heard the word of God from the Apostle Paul, but they weren't content to hear it. They responded to what they heard, and they responded in faith. They were obedient to the Apostle's teaching, and they responded in faith and obedience to both the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ. So they were obedient. Acts chapter 16 and verse number 14, uh, Lydia comes to faith in Christ after hearing the Apostle Paul. Verse 31 of that same chapter, the Philippian jailer comes to him, falling upon his face, and what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And he believes. The Philippians were obedient to the call to faith and repentance that they received from the Apostle Paul. But not only that, but later on, they were not only obedient to the call to faith, but they also shared in the gospel ministry with Paul. Uh, Notice the first chapter in verse number 5. He says, I thank my God upon all my remembrance of you. In verse number 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Not only were they believers, but they were engaged. They were a fellow laborer. They were uh, fellowshipped with the Apostle Paul in his gospel ministry. They contributed, whether by sending him a gift or proclaiming the gospel themselves where they were located. They shared in gospel ministry. So these are believers that were obedient to the Apostle Paul. I'm not sure if that's my phone or if that's somebody else's phone. I must have said serious at some point. Every time, every time. So they were obedient. Notice, um, it's very interesting to note in verse number 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. It's very interesting, the, 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 uh, the location of this kind of uh, this clause in this sentence not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Um, in reading of this past week on this uh, passage, you kind of ran across two different streams. One who always included this phrase in the preceding words, and some who included it in the following. So someone would read it as this, As you have always obeyed, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Basically saying, you guys were obedient when I was there, but to a greater extent, you guys obeyed even more now that I'm not there. Uh, and then the flip side of the people who would join it with the next phrase. So now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. In other words, you have to be more diligent, diligent about doing this and about engaging your life in, in the work of sanctification and following after the Lord. 
um, much more since I'm not there with you to help you. Um, anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. But um, he says, not only is it my presence, but much more in my absence. What does he mean, absence? Uh, obviously, Paul is writing a letter to them, so he's not there with them, obviously. Um, he's, we've already seen that in Philippians 1, that he is in prison, that he's writing, uncertain of whether he's going to live or die. Uh, Paul, in verse number 12, 13, and 14 of chapter 1, uh, draws attention uh, to his current imprisonment. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, what has happened to him, uh, has really served to advance the gospel. Uh, in verse number 13, my imprisonment is for Christ. Verse number 14, um, most of the brothers having become co- confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So there's no question about what Paul is referring to. Uh, he says, I'm not there with you. I can't be there with you because I'm in jail. I'm being persecuted myself for the sake of the gospel. Uh, but this, in the mind of Paul, I, I don't necessarily think he's just referring to the, his temporal absence from them as if this were simply a temporary thing. Uh, in verse number 20 and following, there's kind of a back and forth uh, in Paul's own mind, um, where in, in one sense he's confident that he will be released from prison to return to them, to assist them in their faith. But in, in another sense, he's not sure whether he will or not. Notice verse 20. He says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that will, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Well, that's drastic, Paul. He's talking about dying. In verse number 23, or pardon me, 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. But notice in verse 27, he brings it up again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you, he said, I'm confident I'm going to. He said, whether I come and see you or I'm absent. Surely Paul's absence obviously is referring to his imprisonment, but much greater it This is a looming death that Paul is considering. Even when talking about dying for the sake of Christ, he says, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain, he says, and I can't really choose between one or the other. I would much rather depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but for me to remain here in the flesh is more profitable for you. So Paul here, at the back of his mind, I'm sure is thinking about the day of his death whether that day will be close and even during this period of imprisonment or not. But he says, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. He says, I'm not there with you. I can't be there to uplift you, to help you. And so in in that spirit, I'm encouraging you, be, be of all one mind. Work diligently in this area of sanctification and following after the Lord. So we see Paul commends them for their past obedience. He says, you have always obeyed. You've always obeyed. Notice the second thing is not only Paul's commendation of their obedience, but we see the work uh, of the believer, the work that he is encouraging them uh, and exhorting them to. 
Verse number 12. As you have always obeyed, not so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This uh, text is most commonly used to refer to personal sanctification. On each individual believer at Philippi, Paul, as if he were there, he would be saying this to each individual person, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In our culture today, we especially take a very individualistic approach to pretty much everything. It's all about you, 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 you. Uh, and, and we kind of approach our entire lives that way. We talk about our career. We talk about uh, my this and my that, and everything seems so self-centered. And it's sometimes easy to look into this and say, well, obviously he's talking about me. Uh, many other people read this into other portions of Scripture. You've got that Goliath that you need to just kill. So go out and kill that Goliath. I heard a uh, an excerpt from a... Um, I'm not even sure what to call it, a sermon or a motivational speech talking about the sower uh, and how the sower was out. And the sower, when he sows seed, he's supposed to just let it go. And you've got this seed that you just need to let go of so that um, God can bless it. And that, I mean, not the point of the text at all, but hey, it preaches, right? Sounds good. It appeals to our ears. Uh, so we need to be very careful about how we interpret Scripture and how we look at Scripture. Um, it's very easy to inject ourselves into the text of Scripture. Uh, but we need to be uh, careful to uh, apply the principles of, of scriptural interpretation, obviously scriptural application. Um, and unquestionably, it is, it is uh, very important that we apply Scripture personally. If we don't apply the principles taught and laid forth in Scripture uh, then we are not uh, taking heed to the Word of God as we ought to. But this is different from interpreting. So how are we to understand Paul's exhortation to them? Uh, is this a personal exhortation? Or is this more of a corporate exhortation? Uh, and there are two different ideas about whether Paul is referring to believers individually or the believers as a whole. And I'll kind of give you a brief overview of of how each group would interpret this uh text, and then uh, maybe provide a little uh, summary. So people that would interpret this personally would say, Paul here is exhorting every one of the believers uh, to work out their salvation, to put into daily practice what they have learned from uh, the Lord through the Apostle Paul, uh, and studying the Word of God, uh, in, in doing what God has kind of laid forth for them to do. They would also say that the ex exhortations to humility and unity found at the first part of chapter 2 are individualistic as well. They would say there are some people in the church at Philippi who were not being humble, who were uplifting themselves and not esteeming one another of more significance than themselves. And so Paul here is addressing them and saying, hey, get your act together. Straighten up. Be humble. Uh Consider one another more uh, significant than yourself. Look to other people's things and not simply your own. And uh, in verse, even in verse number 28, uh, referring to uh, salvation, and we'll look at this uh, again in the corporate view. I think it's um, a little more prominent in the corporate view, but uh, in referring to the uh, 
opposition and oppressor, oppressors, the opponents. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their oppressors, of their destruction, but of your salvation. And he says, yeah, we're, we're applying this specifically to each and every believer uh, as evidence of the salvation uh, that they have experienced and will experience when their salvation is brought to complete fruition. Um, so there's a personal aspect to this, and people would say this should only be understood personally. Uh, but there's another view would look at this and say, Paul is not specifically referring uh, to individual believers, but he's referring to the, the, the believers corporately, the believers together as a whole. They would look at um, verse number four of that same chapter. And it says right there, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. What Paul is re- referring them to and, and encouraging them to is not an individualistic approach to life and to holiness. It is to a, a corporate approach. Here they are enduring persecution as a church. In verse 28 of, uh, of chapter one, he refers to their salvation, the same term that he uses later in verse number uh, 13, or pardon me, verse number 12. So they would say it's, it's a corporate um, encouragement. He's not specifically referring to their individual salvation, as in their justification or sanctification or these things. He's referring to their deliverance from persecution. He's referring to their deliverance from pride, disunity, selfishness, and uh, conceit. So those are basically the two, the two views. One would view it individually, the others would view it corporately as the whole of believers in Philippi. So the big question, as always, when you approach interpretational issues like this, which one is correct, right? There has to be a right and a wrong one. One's unquestionably right, the other is unquestionably wrong. Um, my answer to this, and you all can correct me after if you want, um, is kind of a sidestep. These two views are not completely incompatible. As far as sanctification goes, the sanctification of a body of believers uh, is, is done individually, correct? There's an individual aspect to our sanctification. Not every believer is as sanctified as the next believer. Some believers are newborns. They're babes in Christ. They're, they're feeding on the milk of the word and not the meat, as Paul had referred to in other places. Yet other believers are beyond the milk. They're feeding on the meat of the Word of God. They are holy, uh, living their lives holy before God, striving to, uh, to please Him and honor Him with their lives. So in salvation, sanctification and the preservation of God's people as a whole is, is done, uh, in a large extent, it is done individually as God works in the lives of individuals to bring it to pass. So that, that's partially my answer. Right? As, so we can't simply eliminate the individual aspect to, to uh, sanctification, to the salvation here. On the flip side, even if you hold to a corporate view, the individuality of the texts is not lost. In fact, the text itself recognizes the individuality and says to them, I don't want you looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. If he has to mention your own interest, obviously there's some individuality there. He says, I don't want you to be so keyed into yourself, but as individuals, you need to be looking after one another. So 
there's not, um, and in, in this way, especially in, in uh, verse 4 of chapter 2, he's encouraging them to humility, he's encouraging them to, uh, to care for one another. So you can't either remove the corporate aspect and you can't completely remove the individual aspect. So as a conclusion for that, I would say, which one is right? I would say, absolutely. Yes. Uh, to a certain extent, they are both correct. Um, and we'll, we'll look at how that, how that works in, in just a bit. So he encourages them. He says, I, I want you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does this word work out mean? Um, this, this word work out has the idea of, of diligently working at something till it's finally completed. Till it comes to its full fruition. He says, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. There will never be a time in this life where we should not be striving for personal holiness, where we should be stri- where we should not be striving for uh, to to follow after after the Lord in the the closest and most intricate ways as we can. There should never be a time where we're content with our level of sanctification and say, "I'm I have arrived, folks. I'm there." And you guys would be so lucky to be just like me. There's never going to be that point. Even the Apostle Paul, he says, I'm not con- I don't consider myself to have attained, but I follow after that I might apprehend Christ. And certainly our attitude is to be right there with the Apostle Paul saying, surely not, not one of us has attained uh, perfection, has attained that degree of holiness in our lives. We all should be seeking after it each and every day. But he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So we look at this, this word, the, the latter part of verse, verse number 12, with fear and with trembling. With fear and with trembling. What does this mean? The Bible says a lot about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Are we to be afraid of God? In a way, there should be a healthy fear of God. But this, uh, the, the term fear and trembling is used, I believe, nine times in the New Testament. And it has the idea of a, a nervous uh, anxiety, um, a trembling desire, especially in this context, to do what is right. If, um, this word is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1 through 4. Uh, to demonstrate how the Apostle Paul came to the Corinthians with the gospel. He says, and, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided not to, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Notice the contrast between eloquence and words of wisdom and weakness and in fear and in trembling. Uh, I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, have at some point um, had to speak in front of a group of people, like an elementary school, getting up and doing, uh, delivering uh, some type of report or going through a presentation of some kind. Maybe at work you're involved in that. Uh, there are some people that are... are I would say almost literally scared to death of getting up in front of people. And um, I'm one of those people. 
When I was in elementary school, I, I got up to give a, a presentation on the Civil War. Um, and for the life of me, I couldn't remember which character this morning, as I was thinking about this, I said, I can't even remember which character I was presenting. And so I typed into Google, of course, because Google's the answer to everything. Uh, I typed into Google, um, Civil War characters. And guess what popped up? The Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, all of those movies, right? I'm like, wasn't one of those. I can guarantee it. But I can't remember which character I was presenting, but I, I had done a study on uh, the Civil War and this character's role in it specifically. And I remember getting up in front of my class and uh, when I say I was shaking like a leaf, um, I, was, I was trembling. Physically, I was shaking. And my voice was shaking. And I rattled through that five-minute oral report that I did in like 45 seconds flat. I rattled it off, and I got, I got back to my seat as soon as I possibly could. I was scared to death. Uh, there was fear, and there was definite trembling. Um, is that what Paul's referring to? I think to a certain extent he could be referring to that, but as I was afraid of those kids in my class, you know, the 10 people that were there, I I was scared to death of those elementary schoolers. Um, Paul's fear and trembling that he presents here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is is not a fear of the people to whom he is ministering. It is a fear that is directed towards the one who has sent him to minister to the Corinthians. Paul's fear and trembling was uh, an earnest, anxious, nervous desire to please God and to be faithful in the proclamation of his gospel. And not a fear of the Corinthians that would lead to a watering down of that same message. In much in the same way, Paul is exhorting the Philippians to work out their salvation, to be diligent, to, to plod on as believers, to follow after Christ with fear and with trembling fearing the Lord and not the oppressors, fearing God and not one another. So we see the work of a believer is to to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Notice, uh, thirdly, we see the work of God. And I've got, man, I've got so many pages left to cover. The work of God. Verse number three, this is where really the, the crux of the whole passage is. He says, I want you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse number three, four. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So notice, who is the one who's working? God. It is God who works in you. Just as he has said in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Verse 13 uh, resounds that course. God works in you. It is not simply your working to live a holy life. Ultimately, it is the work of God in you that brings about that desire and that work. So we see the one who is working, it's God. We could uh, look at uh, salvation from beginning to end. The only contribution that you made to your salvation is the sin that required it. That's the only uh, thing that we have to offer God is our sin, is our wickedness, our brokenness. But God, through His great mercy and His grace, has saved us. He is the one who has started this, this work. 
We could go through and cover all of the parts of salvation. I would love to do that, but for, for sake of time, we won't. But it says, God works in you. Uh, the word work here in verse 13 is the same word that we get our word uh, energy from. God is the one who is putting forth both powerfully and productively this energy in the lives of believers. And folks, this is the basis for any type of progress in, the, in our spiritual life. What God has done, what He is doing, and what He will finally bring to pass at the day of Jesus Christ. This is the working out of what God has worked in to our lives. You say, well, this comes after verse 13 or verse 12. Verse 12 comes first, talks about our working, and then verse 13 talks about God's working. But when we realize that without Christ, we are worthless, we can do nothing. Uh, Jesus Christ was teaching his disciples in John chapter 15 in the context of bearing fruit. He says, without me, you can do nothing. We can bear no fruit apart from Jesus Christ. So it is any effort that we have to expend on working out our salvation apart from God will be wasted energy, will be useless. John Calvin said of this uh, passage, verse 13, he said, This is the true engine for bringing down all haughtiness. This is the sword for putting an end to all pride. When we are taught that we are utterly nothing and can do nothing, except through the grace of God alone. Very interesting in Calvin's commentaries, I, I, I looked at verse number 12 and verse number 13, and verse number 12 takes up like two sentences of Calvin's commentary. And then he says, let's get really to the theology of the whole matter. And then he jumps into verse 13, and he spends you know, several paragraphs uh, laying out the, the, the truth and the theology of, of verse number 13. But folks, this is the real crux of the matter. God is the one working in us to bring about conformity to Jesus Christ. So we see God is working. We see the work that he does is an effectual work. It's a powerful work. It is a work that brings about his desired end. Notice also it's an all-encompassing work. It is God who works in you. And what is God working in us? Two things both to will and to do of his good pleasure. ESV says both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The, the word will is a desire. Why do we have desire to read the word of God? Why do we have desire to immerse ourselves in scripture and to spend time in prayer and to read the word of God with our families? Why do we have any desire to do that? Because it is God that is working on us, both to will, to desire, and to work out, to do of his good pleasure. Uh, the word works in verse 13 is the same word that um, is mentions uh, God in verse 13. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work. They're correlative. Uh, here he's saying God's working in us produces a work, an energy that we will expend uh, to God's desired end. Both the willingness and the desire to follow the Lord and the energy and the performance to do that in our lives is directly linked to the Word of God. It's all a work of God. You say, well, I, I wanted to do that. 
Well, sure, but why did you want to do it? I want to, 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 to live a clean life. Well, why do you want to live a clean life? Why do you want to follow after the Lord? It's because God has worked in our hearts and to desire to follow Him. This is the working out of verse number 12. It is the work of God within us. Last thing we'll notice is that it's a purposeful work. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Uh, most of the times this, this phrase, good will or good pleasure, is, is used in Scripture. It's used to refer to the purposes and plan of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 5. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Verse number 9, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ. It is for His good pleasure. We're, we're Calvinists, right? We believe that God saves us because of His grace and His mercy alone, right? But how many times do we live in a way that doesn't recognize that? Um, when we get into discussions with other believers that maybe just don't have their theology exactly like we do. What do we do? We beat them up over the head until our family has to come with our cage and throw us back in and put us in the corner? No. We must always be reminded that there is nothing good in us that caused God to do this work in us. It is only by His good pleasure, according to His purpose, according to His will. The other way this word uh, good pleasure is used, or this purpose is used, is uh, to talk about pleasure or satisfaction with something. And I think we do need to be reminded that we are ultimately created for what? The pleasure of God. We are created to glorify Him. God has created us for His satisfaction. He's not created Himself for ours, for us, or for our satisfaction. Even to say that God created Himself, that's a whole... Just pretend I didn't say that, okay? Don't tell Ryan. We are created for the pleasure of God. God does not exist to fulfill our desires or our needs or our wants or what we think ought to happen. Even in um, Philippians chapter 1, Paul going back and forth, well, you know... Um, desiring to depart and be with Christ, but I need to stay here. I'm confident I'm going to get out, but if I don't return to you, even that in and of itself recognizes the sovereignty of God over our circumstances. I was talking with uh, Ivan before service, and he actually brought up this passage of Scripture, but um, thinking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before they went into the, the uh, burning, fiery furnace. What did they tell the king when they wouldn't bow to that statue? The God who we serve, He will deliver us. Then the very next words out of their mouth, but if not, be it known that we will not bow to the statue that you've set up. God is sovereign. We are created for His glory and not our own. So what can we, what can we glean from this to apply to our lives? How are we to understand it? How are we to apply it? Um, first thing is that we, we are to work out to full completion. 
what God and His grace has worked in our lives. This ought to be our daily desire. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 15. Pardon me, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The second thing we need to realize is that these good works are only a result of God's good work in us so that we might desire to do what is right and so that we might accomplish that which is right for His good pleasure. The third thing, and as always, um, I always need to remind myself of this. Our theology ought to lead us to doxology. What we believe to be true about God should bring us to a point not where we just relish uh, in the fact that we have good theology. If that is the end of our theology, um, it's worthless. Our theology should bring us to a place where we worship God and praise Him for who He is and for what He has done. So this should lead us to worship our God, who for no obligation saves unworthy, undeserving sinners like us. And the last thing is that this should lead us to humility. Just as Paul encouraged the Philippian believers to be humble, to do nothing out of conceit or self-worth, that we are too are to reject that selfishness, that desire to puff ourselves up. We are to humble ourselves before God and before one another, striving together, working side by side for the faith of the gospel. God has called us to a specific place in our lives. Whatever it is you're doing ought to be done for the honor and glory of God. Whether that's washing the dishes or cleaning your room or doing schoolwork, or working as a nurse, or whatever it is that you do. We should serve and work in whatever vocation God has called us to for His glory and not our own, and be humble as we undertake what God has given us to accomplish. Let's pray. Dear Father, uh, God, I do pray that you'd help us. Uh, Lord, help me to to be more consistent, Lord, with my uh, everyday life, Lord, working for you and serving you. Lord, help us not to be puffed up, but rather let us be humble, considering uh, each other more significant than ourselves, not looking only to our interests, but to the interests of others. Uh, May you help us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.